Tavi Gaminson is one of three sisters, and she once remarked that siblings are more influential than parents. Quite fittingly then, it was my youngest sister, Michelle, who originally introduced me to Gavinson's online magazine, Rookie, which you can find at rookiemag.com. And most of you are probably here today or watching this online because you're already familiar with Rookie. And for those of you who aren't, what you'll find is a ferociously smart, funny, inviting compendium of thoughts, interviews, features, and guides for teenage girls. There's no other magazine or website quite like it. Since it started, uh, Rookie has featured interviews with Judy Bloom, contributions from Malcolm Gladwell, pieces by the likes of Lena Dunham, Miranda July, and Sarah Silverman on the first time they had sex, and an exceptionally moving global Get Well card soon for Pakistani education activist Malala Yousafzai, who was shot in the head by the Taliban. But where Rookie is really different and impressive is that so much of its writing is actually penned by young teenage girls themselves, chatting, nerding and fanning over everything from Jurassic Park to fashion to videos of baby walruses to Julia Gillard's misogyny speech. In Rookie's inaugural editor's letter, Gevinson wrote a manifesto of sorts. She wrote, Rookie is not your guide to being a teen. It's not a pamphlet on how to be a young woman. It is quite simply a bunch of writing and art we like and believe in. If you're not a teenager anymore, and I'm definitely not, consider Rookie the best conversation you'll ever have with a younger sister. And if you are a teenager, especially a girl, this isn't just a magazine, it's a community. Beyond Rookie, it's not an overstatement to say Tavi Gavinson herself has become an icon. Her 2012 TEDx teen talk, A Teen Just Trying to Figure It Out, has been viewed well over a million times between the TED website itself and YouTube. At 11, her fashion blog Style Rookie became an international sensation. At 14, she was profiled in The New Yorker. At 15, she launched Rookie. And now at 17, she joins us here at the Sydney Opera House. Please join me in welcoming two ideas at the house, and indeed Australia for the first time, the founder and editor-in-chief of Rookie, Tavi Gavinson. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Tavi Gevinson, duh. Uh, and the name of this thing we're doing is My Big Big World, uh, which was largely inspired by this. <laughs> and also by this. Um, seriously though, uh, I'm really psyched to be here and completely honored that the Opera House would have me. I have spent months working on this talk no, I'm sorry, I've spent months procrastinating working on this talk. Uh, because this is an extremely scary thing to be doing. Um, like, being asked to share my world with you makes me feel like I'm supposed to have, like, some special secret to share. And I don't, like, I just don't feel like I have anything terribly new or controversial to say. And, 
Uh, like lately, I've been thinking a lot about originality and authenticity, and that's really what got me all blocked up whenever I tried to work on this, like that pressure, especially as it's associated with youth. Um, and actually, it's all at a point now where doing what I am now, calling myself out for being cliched, is cliched, so like I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Um, and this is something I believe a lot of rookie readers might think about because we tend to attract the kind of girls who want to create things and want to be heard. And it's a very common fear that those things won't happen among people our age today, I think, because of the internet. It's democratic and everyone can have a voice, but it's also, that also means it's intimidating to try and stand out. And it's hard to create things to share to begin with because it feels like everything's already been said and every story's already been told and every song's already been written and they've all been archived online. Uh, so that's where we'll start today. Like um, an anecdote, if you will. Uh, last week, my boyfriend and I broke up. And it was my first breakup, and I'm 17, and my body is supposed to be biologically more emotional than it will be at any other time in my life. So it hit me really hard. Um, and it's okay because we're back together now, but at the time, <laughs> at the time it was awful. And um, it was drawn out for weeks. And throughout that time, I talked to a lot of people about how to deal with these feelings. Friends my age, friends who are married and have kids, uh, artists, writers, directors, a photographer, a musician, two girls in front of me at a Taylor Swift concert. Uh, and I was told repeatedly, like, this is the stuff all the great art is about. It's another experience to be inspired by. You'll use this one day. Another anecdote. Um, almost a year ago, when I was 16 and halfway through my junior year, I was diagnosed with depression. And it was not fun, obviously. Um, but at first I was like, yes! Like, <laughs> I'm a crazy artist. Like, I have the seal of approval from this guy and from all those other dead people. And, like, I'm going to hang out with tortured people and compete in the tortured Olympics. And the harder I make things for myself, the more legitimate things I have to say are. Uh, uh, it doesn't work like that. There's a really good book about that called Marbles by Ellen Forney, which I really rec... <coughs> Sorry, that was gross. <laughs> There's a really good book about this that I recommend. Um... So anyways, yeah, use your heartbreak. Yeah, crazy artist. If you've read any of my writing on Rookie, you know that I'm 100% of the school of thought that is very feel everything always and live life to the fullest and everything is material. But then these sad things happened and I tried to actually make art and I couldn't. Like I literally, I had nothing to say. I didn't feel inspired. I didn't feel special. I just felt at a total loss for words and completely overwhelmed. And trying to make anything just made me feel twice as sad because not only was my heart broken or not only was I depressed, but nothing I was writing about any of it was good. Like, none of my metaphors were unique and all of my imagery was cheesy. Um, like, I continually read over what I would have so far and felt like I was reading a teenager's diary on a sitcom that was filled out by a middle-aged props master. 
named Jeff. Or Pat. And I have a deep-rooted inferiority complex about, like, being original and not being original, because I wouldn't have a public life, a creative life, I wouldn't be speaking to you now, if not for the internet. And something about that has always felt a little impure. Um, not only because what I do wouldn't get exposure in a pre-internet world, but also because I wouldn't do it. Um, I hated writing when I was younger. It wasn't until I'd been keeping up my blog for a while that I realized I'd been doing this thing I hated for years. Um, every cool thing I know about, every band that means anything to me, all of my favorite movies I know about from the internet. So part of what worries me is the fact that all of my references are traceable. Everything I do or say could be tracked down and exposed as being heavily influenced by a book I've written about before. I'll never seem like Bjork, like some magical woodland creature who came out of nowhere with impeccable taste and a never-ending set of skills and incredible artistic ability and no one to credit for any of it. Uh, it's just too late for me. So I've begun to understand the danger of trying to find justification for bad things happening in your life by believing that you will one day make it all into a wildly popular HBO show and feel validated by the whole world. Because what if you write a show people hate? Or what if you write a show that doesn't get made? Or what if you don't even write a show, not even for yourself, because you just don't have it in you? I know that sounds bleak. The last thing I want to do is discourage anyone from being creative. But this is not about not being creative or not being original or not finding release. It's about a certain kind of creativity and originality and release. It's about fangirling. <laughs> what if when you're in a mood, when you feel sad and stuck and too many things to count, it's just more therapeutic to write down someone else's words than your own. The only thing that made me feel better was writing down quotations from stuff I'd read or advice people gave me. My own words were no comfort, but writing out the lyrics to Disappear by Beyonce was like the greatest release I could have hoped for. And finally, all the awful feelings I was going through were not so burdensome, because even if I would not one day be Fiona Apple, I could relate to Fiona Apple. And that made me feel less alone, and that made me happy. And I kind of just decided, I don't care about being original or unique or having an artistic identity or stressing out about any of that. I just want to be happy, and being a fan can be the most happying thing you can be because you feel connected to other people, and you realize these feelings pass through all of us, and they have for years and years and years, and you'll be okay. So when I was asked to speak here, I realized most of my work I have to show you is other people's. Most of my big, big world is a composite of the worlds of others. All Beyonce. <laughs> so at first this all felt stupid, but I know if you're a rookie reader, you might like obsessing over things, and you might know my feeling when I say that all I really want to do is make fan art, like I want to be a professional fangirl. Um, I started a fashion blog when I was 11, and I went to Fashion Week for a few years, for quite a few seasons, and it turned out that I was just happier looking at style.com in my room. It was so much more magical. And it's, 
it's not that I'd had bad experiences in fashion, but when I look back on that time in my life, I have so few memories of Fashion Week. Like, I really have to dig for them, and the stuff that stands out to me as the things that really shaped me are, like, sitting on my bed and reading magazines and feeling like I was getting a secret message from another planet. Uh, it's kind of like a crush, where it's almost more fun to leave it up to your imagination than to actually deal with people. Um, and I think if you eliminate economies like fame or a conventional idea of success, you become really comfortable with your own level of ambition as a content observer of things. As editor of Rookie, my job is really to curate, to find talented people, to tell their own stories, to process pop culture. So this fangirling thing works out for me on a professional level, but it's also kind of become my personal religion and how I see the world. Uh, so this little I'm just a fan thing is not to be taken as playing the underdog, because here's the thing, fangirling is not purely about the subject of your fandom, it's actually almost entirely a reflection of you. Um, on the 20-hour plane ride here, I watched David Attenborough, 60 Years in the Making, and for me, I obviously love watching the animals and the nature, but he's really why I was so taken with it, because he's so enthusiastic and so passionate, and it's so inspiring. Then I watched One Direction Up All Night Live, <laughs> and I just kept feeling like, okay, fellas, you're all fine and good and cute and good for you, but the fans are so obviously the more interesting part of their success. I just wanted to hear Attenborough being like, watch as Harry Styles adjusts his blazer. <laughs> and obviously, yeah, there's a difference between doing decades of research and work like Attenborough has done, and then, like, tweeting at Harry Styles all the time. But what I'm interested in here is the enthusiasm and the refusal to try and act cool and disaffected and just what it is to love something as a religion. These are a few books that have taught me how to be a fan and be passionate and develop my own personal religion of the things that I love. The first on the left is called Mr. Wilson's Cabinet of Wonder by Lawrence Weschler. It's about a place in Los Angeles called the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which is basically a collection of a bunch of random exhibits. Like, there's a, a hall of uh, oil paintings of all the dogs that have ever been to outer space. <laughs> there's a collection of letters that people uh, wrote these, like, really famous superior scientists where they, like, crazy people who were just like, I have the answers. And um, uh, the book is also about the history of museums, and actually the very first museums from centuries ago were not divided up like natural history museum, art museum. It was all combined. Like, museums were started to basically just display cool shit of all kinds. And that's what the Museum of Jurassic Technology founder David Wilson does, and the book reveals that some of the museum is somewhat fabricated by him as well, all in the interest of getting the visitor to question what inside the building is real, to inspire them to wonder. Weschler writes in the book, it's that very shimmer, the capacity for such delicious confusion, Wilson sometimes seems to suggest, that may constitute the most blessedly wonderful thing about being human. And when I talk about seeking out those things which make you wonder and drive you, and I call it a religion, I think of how, in the book, Wilson's wife says that back when he first realized the museum was what he wanted to do with his life, he had the air of a religious fanatic. 
Um, I got to interview David Wilson for Rookie back in November, around the same time I was diagnosed, and I asked him, do you ever feel like there's a shortage of wonder in the world? And he laughed and said it had never crossed his mind. And I said, well, do you worry that you might become someone who's unable to appreciate it? And he said that if you think of yourself as that separate from the rest of the world, which is a very easy way to feel, especially at our age, um, you might be incapable of seeing the wonder. But if you're open, if you want to be connected, you can be in a lot of unexpected ways. And as soon as we hung up on the phone, I started crying because I realized that I'm part of a world that's bigger than the one in my head, not my high school, not even my expectations for college and the future and it gets better, and not even a world where I get to run rookie and talk to you all and meet like-minded people, but like the world world where babies cry and people poop and the weather changes. I absolutely have the angsty middle school girl side effects thing where I don't want to relate to things or where I'm worried that being able to compare my life to a piece of art would somehow make my feelings less legitimate or less special. But learning to have the same kind of openness as David Wilson and to search for wonder the way he does has made me see that connectedness as adding value to my feelings instead of detracting from them. The middle book here, I Love Dick, is by a woman named Chris Kraus. At the start of the book, she's struggling to complete an independent film. She hasn't written in years. She feels as though she's really fallen into the role of wife of instead of her own person. So she has dinner with her husband and his colleague named Dick, and she barely knows the guy, and yet she becomes infatuated with him. And the book becomes all these letters to him, meditations on love and art criticism and an essay on schizophrenia. But he continually rejects her. He doesn't read most of the letters. He doesn't answer them. He asks her to stop ruining his life. But by the end of the book, it doesn't matter because none of it ever had anything to do with him in the first place. His existence gave Chris someone to project a lot of stuff onto, and that is what drives her to eventually find her own voice, show her film, and publish this amazing book. This is a quotation from a letter Jean-Paul Sartre wrote Simone de Beauvoir that reminds me a lot of Chris in that sense. Tonight I love you in a way that you have not known in me. I am neither worn down by travels nor wrapped up in the desire for your presence. I am mastering my love for you and turning it inwards as a constituent element of myself. A couple weeks ago, we had a rookie event in L.A. where I interviewed Rashida Jones, and one thing, sorry, okay, yeah. A couple weeks ago, we had this event, and I interviewed Rashida Jones, and one thing she emphasized about growing up and getting to know yourself is the importance of understanding uh, just how much your feelings are about you and how much uh, they're a reflection of you. And this can be good and bad. Like, I don't think it's healthy to project stuff like anger or to project love like Chris does in a, if it was like a real relationship and he was like ignoring her, that would be bad. Um, but my seemingly self-protective, embarrassed, proud part of me that's made me ashamed of fangirling or of telling someone how I feel about them has really been helped along by taking on this attitude that this is just because I feel things strongly and I have the ability to love things and that has nothing to do with Harry Styles. And it's worked out. The book on the right, which I've decorated with stickers, is Franny and Zoe by J.D. Salinger. And plug your ears if you haven't read this book, because I'm about to give away the whole point, and I don't want it to be ruined for you. 
Uh, so Franny and Zoe are a sister and a brother in a family of child prodigies, and now they're growing up, and Franny's having a bit of a crisis. She breaks down, and then she studies all these different religions, and then she walks around mumbling a prayer over and over to herself. She's basically searching for some kind of sincerity and earnestness after a childhood of being told she's better than everyone else and of being programmed to rank everyone around her by level of intellect. And at the very end of the book, her brother Zoe reminds her that when they were little and they went on radio shows to entertain people with their wit, their older brother Seymour would tell them to do it for the fat lady. Like he had an idea in his head of a woman sitting at home really excited to hear this radio show and you'd do a good job for her and she's not any better or worse than like their parents' fancy friend or a highly respected college professor. Then Zoe wraps it all up and says to Franny... There isn't anyone anywhere who isn't Seymour's fat lady. Don't you know that? Don't you know that goddamn secret yet? And don't you know, listen to me now, don't you know who that fat lady really is? It's Christ himself. So I've always kept this book in mind because it seems to suggest that the highest calling, the supreme being, is a fan, is the person who is open and wants to love things and wants to feel connected. A book and movie that's also done this for me is The Virgin Suicides, it's narrated by a bunch of grown men trying to figure out why these sisters they used to crush on from afar as teenagers all killed themselves. And the worship here goes two ways. One being that the girls have strict parents who keep them trapped inside. They even stop going to school. And so they begin worshiping any outside, any sign of the outside world, like rock records or travel brochures, and that becomes their faith. And the other worshipping happens in how the boys idealize these girls till they barely exist. Roger Ebert pointed out that this makes the story much more about the boys than most people realize. And he wrote, When the Lisbon girls kill themselves, do not blame their deaths on their weird parents. Mourn for the passing of everyone you knew and everyone you were in the last summer before sex. Mourn for the idealism of inexperience. In other words, mourn for the idealism of loving things purely and from afar. There's one scene in the movie that always gets me, where one of the sisters and her date win queen and king at a school dance, and it's the happiest she'll ever be in her short life, because later that night, uh, they have sex, and he leaves her there on the football field, and the idealism of inexperience that Ebert wrote about vanishes. But first, uh, so they win king and queen, they go up there, and they get their crowns, and balloons fall down, and the song Strange Magic by Electric Light Orchestra plays. And it's just so the perfect, sad, earnest, 70s suburban song, and uh, Strange Magic has now become shorthand for my own wonder, or the fat lady, or dick. Uh, and shown here is a hundred-page zine I made that I have hardly ever shown to anyone about all this stuff. This is one spread of a list I keep in one of my journals of moments of strange magic, organized by real life, and then, like, movies and books, and then uh, dreams and imagination. Uh, last summer, my friend and rookie photographer Petra and I made an installation at Space 1520 in Los Angeles, also inspired by all this. We took a road trip with other rookie staffers from New York to L.A. and held events with our readers in 16 different cities, and we asked them to bring us a piece of strange magic of their own. So we got friendship bracelets and pictures of friends and CDs and a book about witchcraft. 
and we added them all to a bunch of junk of our own to create kind of our dream teen bedroom. It was full of shrines and all kinds of iconography, and that reminds me of this part from I Love Dick, where Chris, the author, writes to Dick, You're shrunk and bottled in a glass jar. You're a portable saint. Knowing you's like knowing Jesus. There are billions of us and only one of you, so I don't expect much from you personally. There are no answers to my life, but I'm touched by you and fulfilled just by believing. When I started becoming a fangirl, I, became, I began seeing the world through the eyes of other people in a very thrilling way. It just satisfies some hyper-obsessive part of me to be able to kind of catalog something like a song to turn emotions into what feels like math. So these are pages from uh, when I color-coded Stevie Nicks lyrics by stuff like mentions of animals and types of weather and types of light. For this one... That's not funny. <laughs> For this one, I went through every song from the album Red by Taylor Swift and picked out every line that described a place and mapped them all out. And then this one I made for my friend who loves Lana Del Rey, where I drew and mapped out her lyrics across this old map of the U.S., I've also started looking more closely at what makes my relationship to the things that I like specific to me, kind of in the interest of coming to see fangirling as a reflection of myself. In my art class last year, one homework assignment was to draw your walk to school, so I did mine by all the buildings I pass and all the associations I've made between them and a movie or song or whatever throughout the years. So the 7-Eleven reminds me of a song called Strange, which makes a trip there less bleak. And the line of houses reminds me of American Beauty making the sameness kind of endearing. And the hill by my school reminds me of the show My So-Called Life because you've got your hill and your train and your fence and your kids smoking and your field just below and then all the angst just kind of becomes bittersweet and like something to cherish. Another thing I've enjoyed doing is finding what's common among different things I love. So this is something I made where I began cataloging different types of light and making note of all the appearances they would make in my favorite movies and songs and memories. Uh, and note cards turned out to be an easier system for this, and I've also started decks for cataloging types of buildings and types of plants. Um, but I think I'm most attracted to light because of what it means in most literature. Like, it symbolizes some kind of truth or faith, like strange magic, if you will. Uh, for example, headlights are mentioned in both Tiny Dancer by Elton John and Treacherous by Taylor Swift, so those are both on that card. Um, for glow, I have a note about Ghost World because I read that Daniel Klaus printed that book in that one light blue color because he wanted to recreate that eerie blue glow that black and white television creates and the creepy feeling he'd get when he'd walk down the street and see it in people's windows. I also have down a personal memory of people watching with my friend and marveling at the glow in all these different apartments across the street. Uh, and on that card, there's also a fact that is just fun to share, which is that when a non-digital TV is between stations and it's all fuzzy static, 10% of what you see is caused by photons left over from the Big Bang. So um, 
now watching TV makes me feel like really connected to the universe. I became less ashamed of having all these obvious references and using elements from all this stuff that came before me when I read this bit from a Virginia Woolf interview. She's talking about words and writing, so it's different, but I think it still applies. She says, words, English words, are full of echoes of memories of associations, naturally. They've been out and about on people's lips, in their houses, in streets, in the fields for so many centuries. And that is one of the chief difficulties in writing them today, that they are so stored with meanings, with memories, that they've contracted so many famous marriages. In the old days, of course, when English was a new language, writers could invent new words and use them. Nowadays, it is easy enough to invent new words. They spring to the lips whenever we see a new sight or feel a new sensation. But we cannot use them because the language is old. Our business is to see what we can do with the English language as it is. How can we combine the old words into new orders so that they survive, so that they create beauty, so that they tell the truth? That is the question. These are just some examples of ways I've tried to create new order out of the things I love of the past, just like connections among colors and album art and songs and books and food. Uh, and this is from that road trip we were on. We were in Nebraska or Colorado, and we were listening to the Rolling Stones, and we passed a sign that said Red Lion Road, which made me think of the Stone song Ruby Tuesday, because red and ruby, which made me think of that scene where that song plays in the Royal Tenenbaums, where they're sitting in a yellow tent, and also the wallpaper in that movie has all these little lions and other animals on it. Then we passed a bunch of little rainbow buildings, which made me think of their song She's a Rainbow, which also sort of resembled circle, circus tents. So all of it kind of came together, and I felt like I was seeing an embodiment of their music all around me, and it was really cool. Uh, this one's too complicated. It's like trying to read your own handwriting. I, I don't know. I don't know. With my journals, which I do obsessively, I kind of stopped. I, I, like, I started Rookie, and I stopped blogging, and then I started keeping all these journals for myself. Uh, and it's been largely satisfying to make each one feel like a catalog of a specific world made up of all these associations that, I, that seem to go together. And for the period of time that I'm using that journal, I'll make everything in my life match it. Like my handwriting and my outfits and the music I listen to and the photos and drawings that might go in the diary. The way I used to use my blog and personal style as outlets for playing with identity and feeling like a new person, now I put that into just everything. And um, having some kind of aesthetic parallel for whatever's happening in my life at the time can make it feel like it makes more sense or has a place in the world or it can even be beautiful. Uh, like when I was depressed and then I started trying to change the way I think, I made my journal feel like a scientist's notebook. Or when I felt very sad during my sophomore year because I was learning the virgin suicides lesson of how daydreaming can be uh, more satisfying than real experience. My journal then was all sad love songs from the 70s and glittery pink childish daydream stuff. I realized recently that when we think about personal identity, when we imagine ourselves, we picture ourselves from the outside. You see your face and your body through the world's eyes instead of what to me is a more accurate representation of who you are, and that's the world through your eyes. And it sounds like hippie BS, but now when I feel like my hair looks bad or I'm all greasy, I'm able to just stop caring by being like, well, I don't have to look at it. Like, 
I'm looking at everything else, and that's who I am. And when I feel like purely a set of eyes, I'm at my happiest. Being interested in finding associations among the objects of my fangirlism and in finding the aesthetic parallel to a concept uh, also helps with the monthly theme format we have on Rookie. So Paradise was all like California and Hollywood and Freedom was all suburban. And this really comes into play in the books we do too. Uh, Last year we put out Rookie Yearbook 1 and this year on October 1st, Yearbook 2 will come out. And one of my favorite parts of working on it uh, was getting to make it feel like a new book every 30 pages when the theme changes and the layout is altered. Now, fangirling, internalizing fangirling, has worked out quite well for me, but there are dangers I've encountered. One is something you just have to get over, which is realizing your feelings are not all that special. That's fine. You're part of the human race, David Wilson, etc., Two is that you might look uncool for expressing enthusiasm, and that's okay because anyone who might accuse you of being uncool for expressing enthusiasm, they're just not focusing on the right things to make themselves happy, and they should not be friends with people, and yeah. Um, Three is that you hide behind your tastes instead of understanding what makes them specific to you, and then you start to see other people the same way, and then everyone just becomes a collection of Facebook likes classified by hipster or mainstream or what have you, and that takes all the fun and nuance out of everything and um, limits people to arbitrarily conceived ideas of what they are and aren't allowed to like. So let others like stuff the same way you like things unto you. Mm, Four is that you want to create your own art, but you get all stifled because you feel so intimidated by all the stuff you fangirl over that came before you. You feel like you could never live up to all your influences, so you just give up entirely. There's a really good TED talk about this uh, called Pressure, Power, Punk Rock, where this girl talks about loving punk musicians so much that she's too scared to even try and make her own music. And she wraps it up with the saying from the punk community, kill your idols, and interpreting it as to just forget about the passing of the torch and just stop worshiping your heroes. Uh, You should humanize them and understand that you have a place right next to them. Five is that you become, the fifth danger, is that you become really obsessed with an artist or writer or whatever, and you worship them, and you take their word as gospel, and then you grow out of it and feel stupid, uh, or you realize they're a total jerk, like they publish something that's in really poor taste, or it's offensive, or it's just like bad quality and embarrassing. Then what you need to do is, first, if they're accessible, and what they did was actually offensive to you, not out of taste, but just because they're showing prejudice or ignorance or something, uh, you can write to them or comment on their article or tweet at them. And the second thing you need to do is accept that a lot of fangirlism ends in learning that the thing you liked then uh, didn't mean what you thought it did or it isn't important to you now, but you still shouldn't feel all silly and stupid for it uh, because artists are, according to history, not the most reliable or consistent people And meaning is malleable, but the personal truth you once saw in a poem exists not in a thorough analysis of the words on the page, but in the moment in which you felt like you've received a gift of clarity and relief and comfort from the universe. 
It lies in the magic of the coincidence that you should come across this work at just the right time. Still, I can't help but feel like the internet part of all this makes it a little insincere and unnatural. Like, the Breeders are one of my favorite bands, but I didn't find, I don't get to say I found them by digging in a bin in the back of a record store like I found them from my friend's blog. And blog is a terrible word. It's like, it's just awful. We need a new word for it. Um, but the internet and the access it grants to these things we all love is a part of our history as people. And our history is just as natural as one of other kinds of animals and the rest of the world, which is still why I want David Attenborough to narrate a One Direction documentary. <laughs> but I digress to my last anecdote. At the beginning of last summer, pre-road trip, pre-depression diagnosis, pre-breakup, I was in a mood, duh, at this point, and I, like... I was just a mess, and I couldn't get through a normal conversation with anyone, and none of my, like, pop culture comfort tools stuff was working, because was, it was just bad. And um, I have this memory of just lying in my parents' bed and being all angsty, and this yellow light coming from the lamp on the floor over in the corner, and my dad telling me about an evolutionary biologist, paleontologist, and science historian named Stephen Jay Gould. He spent his life studying evolution and bringing his ideas on the subject to the masses. He was one of few scientists who wrote these bestsellers that made science really accessible. And then in 2002, at the end of his life, in a book called The Structure of Evolutionary Theory, published two months before his death, as he was looking back, he wrote this. We care because the broad events that had to happen happened to happen in a certain particular way. Something almost unspeakably holy, I don't know how else to say this, underlies our discovery and confirmation of the actual details that made our world, and also, in realms of contingency, assured the minutiae of its construction in the manner we know, and not in any one of a trillion other ways, nearly all of which would not have included the evolution of a scribe to record the beauty, the cruelty, the fascination, and the mystery, unspeakably holy to an evolutionary biologist. Not just the fact that there is all this wonder in the world, but that we can appreciate it, record it, be a scribe, be a fangirl at all. Thank you. Hey, Tavi, thank you so much for that. Thank you. I really loved you talking about fangirling because I think becoming a fan is one of the most beautiful things about being a teenager. Yeah. Um, you've said before that because you're one of three siblings and you're the youngest of three girls, that siblings can often be more influential in tastes um, than other people like parents, for instance. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your two older sisters and how they've influenced your tastes over the years? What have they introduced you to? Well, my oldest sister was in high school when I was in elementary school. So I was part of... Um, like, I was really into... Bell and Sebastian when I was like nine. <laughs> so I kind of 
so I got over that early in my life, which is good. Mm -hmm. Um, I still like them, but it's just, it was like 2005, so I'm just glad that that's, like, in the past. Um, (laughs) But I, um, well, actually, apparently, like, studies show that obviously your parents decide on where you'll live and what schools you go to and all these decisions that obviously influence you. Mm. But behavior-wise, they your siblings influence you more than your parents when you're little. And um, for my sisters, yeah, the oldest one's 23 and the middle one is 21. And um, so much. I mean, I really have wanted to be both of them at different times in my life. And there's certain things where it's like we can't have conversations with other people because like my middle sister and I we have the same sense of humor and no one else has it so if we talk to other people it's a very alienating experience for them (laughs) you've got your own language sorted out or is it based on references we shared a room when we were younger we have spent endless days once literally we wanted to uh like set some kind of record (laughs) So we spent, like, 25 hours on the couch. And, and you didn't get bed sores? What happens after 25 hours on the couch? Um, you go to IHOP. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, the one time we... At the end of it, um, we did it with our two friends who are also sisters, and we've all known each other since we were little. And at the end of it, I had, like tried to make it to the bathroom but I just like flopped down on the living room rug and then I just heard them get into some kind of little argument and my friend's sister went I just I have to go I have to take a walk mm-hmm. and she walked through our living room to our dining room and then around <laughs> so it's very funny tell us um about <laughs> Tell, tell us about, um, I'm going to ask a slightly boring question, which is your scheduling. Uh, how do you balance things? You're the editor of a magazine. You mm-hmm. go to school. In fact, school's about to start in the States. And you do traveling as well. How do you balance things? Do you balance things? No, I don't. My life is a lie. <laughs> um, I... I've just kind of had to cut out things that aren't important to me. Like, I don't really procrastinate anymore. I don't... um, I don't know. I mean, now at this point, the first year of Rookie was my sophomore year of high school. Year 10, as I think you say. Um, And now I'll be year 12. So, like, that year was really hectic. And since then, I've been able to kind of uh, outsource stuff I did then, which was like real, you know, like formatting posts on the website and being really in there. And now we have more editors and a bigger staff. So the stuff I do for Rookie is now the stuff that's more specific to, you know, decisions that have to be made by me. Um, Mostly, yeah. I mean, I've been told that the key to not procrastinating is to um, have so much to do that you can't. So I think that's just where I'm at now. I was going to ask you, because just saying to yourself, I'm not going to procrastinate Mm -hmm. any longer, that seems like black magic to me. Like, how do you actually get there? But are you saying you just cram it all in until there's no room to move? Well, 
not cram it all in because I have to, I know I have to make time for myself to relax and everything, but now I understand why that stuff is important, so I don't feel guilty when I just, like, watch TV and don't do anything. Mm -hmm. But I think, I mean, I have had to accept that, like, something's got to give, so one day I have more rookie work, so I can't do my homework. Sure. And I will suffer the consequences the next day at school. And that's a decision I made, and that's fine, because I get to do rookie. And, um, yeah, I think it's just, you know, sometimes I wish I could be more involved with school activities, or I wish I could uh, have more time to just read books that are not my English books for school. But that's just kind of... You know, it's a compromise that to me is worth it because I get to do everything I love. So mm. Now, you're 17 at the moment, mm. and you've said before that when you're a kid, you're more confident, and then you become a weird in-between. And you've spoken a bit about that sense of uncertainty that kicks in when you're a teenager, whether you're doing the right thing or whether things are you know, going okay or whether you have the right taste. How do you balance that uncertainty that you've spoken about and running a magazine, which I imagine requires a very strong sense of vision and certainty and confidence. Can you t tell us about that? I think you just, for me, I've just had to learn to love the uncertainty. Uh, last year, one of our writers interviewed Neil deGrasse Tyson, and it was while the astrophysicist, because they had just discovered uh, something that I don't know what it is, but, um, and I was, and it was while we were on our road trip. So I was in the hotel room with her while she was doing it. And so I got to like hear him through Skype and I was freaking out. But so she said like, doesn't it freak you out that 95% of the universe is unknown? And he said, no, that's what gets me. That's what makes me want to go to work every day. You can't be intimidated or depressed by the size of the universe. You have to be uh, really, he says, embrace your ignorance. Mm. So, and I'm also lucky because with Rookie, it's not like my job is to have all the answers to everything all the time. It's um, a place where I can work out things that I'm dealing with. It's kind of like free therapy because I can be like, we need a writer on this topic post haste. Sure. And then like, I'm just like, oh, well, thank you for solving my problem. <laughs> Um, it's very crafty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you identify very proudly, vocally, as a feminist. And I think, I don't know if I'm making a generalisation here, maybe you can confirm it, but I think for a lot of young women, especially in the developed world, um, calling yourself a feminist has become a sort of a murkier title that they don't really want to adhere to. Was there a, a moment for you where you're personal experiences met with the philosophies of feminism and decided they agreed? How did you come to it? I was maybe 13 and I just, I started learning about Riot Girl and I read a book about uh, like the um, female musicians and women in rock from the 90s up until now mm -hmm. and kind of tracing like Riot Girl to the Spice Girls to now. And um, it just made sense to me. It was, it just made more sense to me to be a feminist than to not be a feminist. Uh, I, there are reasons why some 
women and some people don't identify with the movement that are beyond, um, you know, I think for a lot of people my age in the developed world, like you say, there is a stigma around it because you don't want to be someone who, uh, like, causes a fuss and you don't want to be a killjoy. And we kind of take our privileges for granted, so we don't understand why it's important. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the movement does have a history of alienating some groups of women. Mm-hmm. So I just I want to make that distinction distinction between like women who don't identify as a feminist because you know they're worried or the stigma and then women who have a deeper history with it but for me it just I started learning about it and it just made sense and I was like 13 and that is the cusp where supposedly for girls you lose your childlike confidence and you can never fully gain it back uh, it doesn't sound like a scientific thing, but I read it somewhere, and it was. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, I have to get my tools together for liking myself. And my sister says that I lucked out because she was like, you got into all that stuff. Like, I think a lot of girls come to it, like, in college. Um, but I, I did luck out because I was, like, right before high school. So then it was easier to go to high school and not be... Um, I'm nervous about, you know, stupid things that I think we all get hung up on. Instead, I could start Rookie and do stuff like that. Mm. Part of what I find really interesting about Rookie is that it's a very cross-generational magazine, at least in the types of conversations and types of features that it has inside there. I mean, you've got um, sections like Ask a Grown Man with John Hamm and Paul Rudd and Judd Apatow giving advice to teenagers. Was that a really deliberate decision to include people that are old enough to be your older sister, your cousin, your aunt, your mother, your grandmother, Mm. and involve them in the magazine that way? Well, yeah. I mean, I think part of it is you want to hear from people who are your age and going through these things at the same time you are and who know what it's like to be a teenager now. Um, But I think you also want to hear people who have been through these experiences that are somewhat universal to teenagers, no matter what time you're growing up in. Um, And you want to hear from people who can have perspective on their own teen years and who are able to look back without all of the fog that you might feel now when you try to step outside yourself. And Ask a Grown Man is like so funny to me because we're a website for teenage girls and our most popular feature is about grown men (laughs) (laughs) but they have some they have great advice Mm. so i might throw it to the audience soon so how about we throw up the lights if we could do that um so we can see actually how many of you are out there fantastic now i'm just going to I was about to say heard you, but that sounds like cattle. But there are um, four spots. One, two, three, and four. Now, if you want to ask Tavi a question, start making your way to those spots, and we'll throw to you very, very soon. Um, But while people are making their way to the mics, um, I've got a question. I mean, this is a bit sneaky because I'm asking someone's question for them. Mm -hmm. But um, my friend Julian wanted to ask you a question, and he might not get a chance to stand up to the mic. Julian's 11, and he wants to know if you have any tips for 11-year-olds who want to start blogging. Ah, um, I think the most important thing is, it sounds really like 
cliched, be yourself, whatever. But you have to write about what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. When I started my blog, I remember um, seeing other fashion blogs and, like, they would write about, like, they'd all be writing about something. And I'd be like, I guess this is an important thing I have to talk about. And it was actually, you know, I think the most enjoyable writing to read, even if you're not interested in the particular subject, the most interesting stuff to read is when you can feel the enthusiasm coming from the writer uh, and when there's a very genuine passion there. So I think to just write about what you care about because uh, that way you kind of can't go wrong because you'll be having so much fun. Mm. So, yeah. And just quickly, what about getting an audience? I mean, there's one thing to write what you really want to write about and be good at it, but in terms of finding, finding a readership, what's, what's your best advice there? Well, for me, when I started my blog, it was a very tight-knit community. Like, there weren't... Hello? <laughs> there weren't, um, you know, like, people weren't writing about fashion bloggers in newspapers, and bloggers weren't going to Fashion Week and stuff. So I think there would be these kind of, like, community-wide conversations and... Um, I, I mean, I, there's no way to say this without sounding like networking or like, you know, just per, like just mindless. Say, you're allowed okay. to. Well, I had relationships with other bloggers because mm -hmm. I liked their blogs and they liked my, they liked mine. And so I think, ugh, networking. Yeah. I mean, you that just sounds like to... networking, but it sounds like community as well, right? Yeah, right. Right. Another I mean, word. I feel like a guy at a conference being like synergy but <laughs> <laughs> okay let's well, that's let's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to the audience i've got one very very quick question which is yeah. every magazine editor i know has the story the interview they've always wanted to run in their magazine but they can't get that talent they can't access that person they can't get Jerk in their magazine or whatever it is. For you, what is that story that you still want to get? I'm trying to think. Mm. I think, um, well, I would love for Neil deGrasse Tyson to do an Ask a Grown Man for us because he's such a wise man. And uh, the others are cool because they're like actors and comedians, but I want to hear from an astrophysicist mm. about crushes. Or we tried... <laughs> We tried to get Obama, like, we had a Twitter campaign going, but then, like, the actual election was happening. Right. Like, I think he had other things to do. I don't know. <laughs> so we kind of put that to rest. Fantastic. Tavi, thank you so much for coming today. Thank you and so much. And I hope much. you enjoy Australia. Thank you.